says tech can't be human? Are you hitting a bar with your sock that's good enough, right? Things are not completely falling apart. There's no disasters. Maybe the most important thing for you to do right now is figure out how you can remove future work from the sock. That's kind of the term I love. What can you do today that prevents you from having to do something tomorrow? Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. Too many cybersecurity assets and SaaS applications, not enough visibility? Enter Exonius. The Exonius solution correlates asset data from existing solutions to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action, giving IT and security teams the confidence to control complexity. Visit exonius.com forward slash Hacker Valley to learn more and try it out for free. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash Hacker Valley. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have with us John Hubbard. John is the host of the Blueprint Podcast. John is also a senior instructor for SANS and leads the curriculum for cyber defense. John, anyone who is changing the game and leveling the playing field in cybersecurity has a near and dear spot in our hearts. Thank you for all that you do and welcome to the podcast. Thanks guys so much for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan, so real excited to be here. We are excited to have you. I got to be real with you. I went through the initial stages of becoming a SANS instructor. I tell you what, the intention and the thoughtfulness that goes into creating a SANS instructor is really beyond any comprehension that I think most people can even realize. The folks that have taken a SANS course, you know that they're going to be a great instructor. But really just seeing everything that goes into creating instructors is really awe-inspiring. And to be the curriculum lead, I'm sure is even another level above and beyond that. What is the secret sauce of really becoming a great instructor to that caliber, especially when it comes to being in complex topics like in cybersecurity? So we always joke that this is one of the longest job interviews ever. And I can tell you from the the very (laughs) first moment that I started getting involved with SANS, I was a nobody to SANS, right? I was a student like anybody else ever was. Took my certs, kind of did my thing, got that intro email. It's like, hey, you're qualified to kind of start down this path. Basically, from that moment to the point that I hit kind of certified instructor, which is like the first level of like you're an official instructor, was about three years. (laughs) So it's a whole lot of practice and preparation just for teaching the class, getting up on stage, being comfortable in front of the classroom, answering questions and training and just really trying to learn your topic as deeply as you possibly can. So it's kind of the mix of technical knowledge and being able to deliver and present and teach people effectively, which is why it's a three-year process for many people. And it almost seems like this would be a full-time job. Is this the main thing that you focus on these days? So for most of the people who are instructors, we're not full-time SANS because SANS doesn't want us doing full-time teaching. We will teach somewhere between, I would say, anywhere from like six weeks a year up to like a max of maybe 20 for some of the craziest people that really like travel. But they encourage people to like stay kind of with one foot in the game doing consulting or holding down a full-time job if they have an employer that's nice enough to let them be gone that much and still teach. So it's kind of a mix of stuff. So most of us have some kind of side, you know, I do side consulting and with me, it's a little bit different because the curriculum lead gig 
kind of brings it more full time for me. But yeah, most people are like, I don't know, one quarter sands and then three quarters something else. That makes a lot of sense. When you look at a good instructor, I think the thing that sticks out in my mind is being magnetic. When you see a SANS instructor and they're talking about these really, really complex ideas and terminologies and concepts, you're like glued to them. And not just because you know that that tough test is going to come at the end of this journey, but they're just so inviting and they're so fast paced. And a lot of them have styles that lean towards the more comedic side. They're humorous. Some folks are really awe-inspiring from the position of being able to tell stories about when they were doing things, whether it's incident response or being a pen tester. When you look at some of the instructors that I'm sure you've helped cultivate over time, what do you think are the makings of a good instructor? Obviously, the technical aspect has to be there in a very, very strong way. But beyond that, we have specific instructor camps and instructor development classes that we do with everyone where we make it a big, big point to say, like, you have to deliver this message not only with razor sharp clarity, but you also have to deliver it with passion and energy because people are sitting there watching you talk for 36 hours. And if you aren't excited about it, they're not going to be excited (laughs) about it. Right. Right. So we're trying to get people who are like live this stuff and just love, love, love talking about it. And we hope that people can pick up the skill of kind of like letting that energy shine through. And it's a little bit weird sometimes, like getting excited at first about some of these topics because you're like, well, I don't know if someone, you know, people in the class might already know this. So it feels a little weird to be excited about it. But you think back to your own experience as a student sitting in the classroom. And I know there was plenty of times I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Right. And going to SANS classes changed my life in a number of ways. And so I think back to those moments and try to draw on that and say, like, I got to deliver the most entertaining 36 hours of courseware in a week that I can. So people aren't just falling asleep and dying by the end of the week. We focus pretty hard on that. It's really the delivery, the stories, the realistic applications, all that stuff we try to emphasize as much as possible. The course that you teach is cyber defense. And I would imagine that cyber defense is a pretty broad topic. So what makes you very comfortable teaching that course? And also, what are some of the elements of the course? So there's actually two courses that I teach quite a bit, both of them on the same topic, but from different aspects. I teach uh, Sec 450, which is kind of the technical aspect of working in a SOC. What are the tools? What's the technology for? What kind of workflows and automation and data do you need to collect and all that stuff? And then also Management 551, which is the management side of getting a security operations center whipped into shape. And what are the things that a manager has to consider in terms of team building, retention and burnout reduction and all the kind of higher level stuff. And so in both of those classes, we approach what does it take to succeed? And in both of them, if there was one word I was going to summarize both of those classes with its priorities is getting the right stuff there first and not getting distracted by all the other details that are potentially there trying to pull you in the wrong direction. And you got to take that threat intelligence focused look at what's going on here. What are the attacks that are most likely going to bring the business down, take a million dollars out of the bank account, and at least make sure you're doing some big action to stop those things first. So both classes are really oriented around what are those things at any given moment in time and how do we get in their way (laughs) and stop that (laughs) kind of stuff from happening. When I look at my career as a practitioner, I've been in quite a few socks in my day and, and I love that environment, but maybe Four, maybe five years ago, there was a lot of folks speaking about sockless security programs where it's more of a distributed model for security. And a lot of folks were like, oh, how do we do it? How do we make it happen? Honestly, from my perspective, it's a really tough thing to do. It can be beautiful when someone is able to implement it. But 
what were you thinking? Because obviously the two courses that you really teach are really focused on having a sock and operating a sock effectively. When you see folks talking about these sockless models, what kind of comes to mind from your perspective? Yeah, funny you ask that. I was actually having a conversation about that yesterday. So one of the ideas that's been put out there, I think largely by maybe the Google security team is this thought of the autonomic sock. I don't know if you've read any of those kind of white papers on that. Have you? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So that kind of thing, like let's embed security with each mini group that's churning out different aspects of what this organization does. Right. It's a really compelling idea. And I love some of the stuff that they're talking about and go into some of that in the classes as well. But it's an interesting move. And the conversation I was having yesterday was, will it work for every organization out there? The ones that have been built in the more traditional, like we have a security team and they help everyone. I think it's going to be a lot harder for them to transition into that. But if you have a brand new organization building from the ground up with that as the way, that's probably going to be a lot easier thing to do. And as with any question in security, as you both know, the answer is often it depends, right? <laughs> what are you trying to pull off? What are you optimizing for in this particular decision? Is it a money play? Is it absolute security at any cost? There's a lot of valid solutions and it all comes down a lot of the time to what's the end that you're trying to reach. I think certainly it will work for some organizations. I'm not sure if it will work for all, if we're all get there someday, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I am of the camp that we can absolutely get there. And me and Chris argue about this all the time. Can, <laughs> how much can you truly automate? I feel like with the sockless model, you really have to have a lot of automation to bring the information to the right team members and the right organizations with right functions within your team. What do you think we could do today to start to realize some of that idea of a sockless model? Automation, as you said, is a big, big player in what's going on in any kind of security or really any organization right now, IT and as a whole, right? Robotic process automation is the term we hear a lot where SOAR is the more security specific version a lot of people use in a SOC. But either way, right, that's going to play a huge role. The question really becomes, and maybe this is the debate you're referring to, is like, can we automate away security practitioners to the point where the system is kind of taking care of itself? And we can approach that, again, back to Google's literature, if you read like the SRE books and stuff like that, they have a big mindset around, you're here to make the system run itself. Mm. I would love to see a world where security practitioners do a very different thing because the systems are so secure and we're just designing how they take care of themselves. We may get there someday. I think that's the road that we have to chase. And that's ultimately the answer to the question is keep kind of following what some of these leading companies are doing. I don't know how close we are to that, though, because as you know, when you get into a complex incident, there's a lot of human brain required. And so while we can get automation to do a lot of the maybe controls and a lot of the pre-incident, maybe data gathering and context gathering, I'm not sure how close we're going to get to full automation. We don't need a security team anymore, at least in my career span, but we'll see. Ron and I, we talk about this all the time. We literally had an entire technically divided episode dedicated to that. Definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. I think we can get 90% of the way there when it comes to automation. I still think in perpetuity, even beyond, from my opinion, in our lifetime, I think we'll never completely go away from having humans to be a pivotal cog in that process. But I do think we can get pretty far along with automation. When you think about the human endeavor, you think about the human side of cybersecurity, I think that we have some of the most brilliant people in different ways in our industry. When you look at yourself, when you look at your career, and even going as far back as your childhood, what about your life? What about your way of thinking really 
made it easy for you to first become a cybersecurity practitioner, but to ultimately become a great communicator of these ideals? There were signs that I would go in this direction probably early on if I knew what I was looking for. I was one of those kids that was overclocking my computer, penciling in traces <laughs> on the top yeah. of my Athlon CPU to overclock it, do all that kind of stuff. I was always into electronics. I actually went to school for electrical engineering and did a computer engineering master's eventually. And it was during that I was listening to podcasts way back in the day and started listening to InfoSec podcasts. And that got me two specific things. One, it gave me the interest in InfoSec and told me, hey, this is a thing that you can actually do as a full-time career, which I'm not sure I was fully aware of back then. That was probably, I would say, 2005 when I first got interested in InfoSec and started self-learning it. And then from there, just kind of hearing how people could describe these things so well in just a basic audio format. Security Now is the podcast I listened to way back then. And Steve Gibson is like so great at describing very, very complex things in an audio format that it was actually the podcast I would give like sole credit to from even being able to get into InfoSec in the first place from doing an engineer job at the time. So I picked up a little bit of the communication aspect of that. And, and he was able to explain things and the applicability and why it matters in a way that was really exciting to me. And hopefully that's something that I picked up and kind of carried into the classroom and wanted to further perfect and kind of pass on to other people, which is what got me into doing my own podcast and a YouTube channel and all sorts of other stuff out there. Just being able to share the excitement about these new technologies and concepts and pass those on to the next people that are trying to get into this the same way I was back then. Really, really fun. Love that. We all got to attribute our success, our upbringing, our growth somewhere and I do the same for podcasts as well. That's why we started a podcast. We wanted to have those same types of conversations that these podcasters that we're having, like Security Now and also CyberWire, explaining the complicated, complex topics of cybersecurity. What are some of the tenets that you like to live by when going about that, especially doing it for many hours at a time? So there's a couple of things that I try to stick to as many times as possible. One being drawing things out. Like I think just having a clean, clear visual, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? So if I can say like, oh yeah, we're going to collect data in the sock, but I can draw it out as, well, actually like the way I conceptualize a sock in class, for example, like we say, first you have to collect the things that are going to be security relevant. And then you bring those to a point where you're doing detection. And then we move that to triage. And then we move that to investigation and then incident response. And I kind of draw it out like a manufacturing line. And I say like every single one of these steps, no matter whether you're in a proper sock or just one person security team, like you're doing those things, right? You got to collect what's happening and identify the bad stuff, prioritize it, deal with it. Try to make that as a comparison to something that people already understand and then draw it out so they can remember that picture more easily. Some of the reference materials we talk about in the class point out that the easiest way to commit anything to long-term memory is say, this thing is like that thing. And so when I'm explaining like Kerberos, for example, which is very, very complex, mm -hmm. I try to distill it down to something very simple. Like you came to a SANS event, you went to a table, you showed them your ID. That's like part of Kerberos where you verify who you are. And then you go and you take that lanyard and you take it to a different table and you get your books. That's like getting a service ticket with Kerberos. And people are like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense, right? I identify who I am to one person and then I get my service from the other one. And that's kind of it. And if you can just draw those kind of simple pictures out for people, it makes them learn a lot more effectively and quickly and hopefully keeps their attention for the, the duration of class. <laughs> one of the things that I see quite often is you start to build a program, security program. Obviously, you're starting to bring in different solutions for your environment. And in the beginning, things aren't well-tuned. We know that. But what happens is 
folks get caught up in the reactive. Well, now we're dealing with false positives. We're dealing with all these little fires constantly. And it's almost like we never can really get to proactive. And that's where a lot of burnout comes from. That's where a lot of the alert fatigue really comes in. What are some of the things that you've seen or been able to advise on the managers of these socks on how do you go from being reactive to proactive when you don't even have enough time to handle everything as is? Great question. I love that one. That's one thing I talk about at length in any class, whether it's about that or not. I always love going into this. Over and over, I hear I'm too busy to automate things. And I immediately have to follow that up with, well, if you don't force that into your schedule, you're always going to be because like there's this interplay between short term and long term wins in a sock. And sometimes you have to do that, take that short term hit for a long term win. And automation is like the number one thing there. I break things down into what's called the Eisenhower matrix and the urgent versus important right. and what's urgent, what's important, all that kind of stuff. Automation is that box to it's not urgent, but it's very important. And so that's where creating these automated workflows sits. It's like they're not blinking red at you. They're not emailing you. They're not saying, hey, create me. Right. So people don't do it. I got alerts to work, but I like bring to people's mind. Are you hitting a bar with your sock that's good enough? Right. Things are not completely falling apart. There's no disasters. Maybe the most important thing for you to do right now is figure out how you can remove future work from the sock. That's kind of the term I love. What can you do today that prevents you from having to do something tomorrow? And it might feel awkward because you might say that alert that's blinking over there, like I'm not going to work that right now because it's ultimately maybe not that important compared to writing this workflow that's going to free me up for an hour every day for the rest of my life. Right? Mm -hmm. People have to just force themselves into that mindset. And We've all heard probably like the stories about companies that have 20% time and all that sort of stuff. That's really what it comes down to is acknowledging that has to be a minimum required time for let's make this job better. Let's make the sock more so run itself than it did yesterday. We uh, can get into the toil thing and all of that from Google's SRE books again, but that's really the perfect way of nailing it down is what can I do right now that's going to make this service better forever and then actually do those things instead of firefighting really is what it comes down to. <laughs> that's truly switching from being reactive to proactive. And I think that's what it's all about is not doing the same thing over and over and over again, because we weren't hired or trained to do that in the first place. With you teaching many, many people that work in a sock, have you heard any transformational stories? Maybe someone that didn't take your course yet and then took it and came back and told you how they changed their security program or even their sock around. Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, I get random unsolicited messages on LinkedIn where people just say, hey, I just took your class, went back. I had tons and tons of ideas just dumped on the team and things are working way better. Sometimes I have Zoom calls with folks and kind of see what their opinion is on the class and how we can take it even further than that. All sorts of conversations like that really all the time, even down to not even from class. I got a message that I just loved the other day on LinkedIn just from watching some of the YouTube videos I had out there. A guy, I think his name was Mike had messaged me and was like, hey, John, just wanted to thank you so much for your YouTube videos. I put out not even that many YouTube videos on just random basic sock skills. And he's like, I was a truck driver and I was able to make the transition into information security. Your YouTube videos were a huge help. Love hearing stories like that. So that's what really drives me. And I love hearing those stories. And definitely there are plenty of them out there, which is what keeps me going day to day. One thing that's really difficult to do from our perspective, and we're a little biased, but is to start a podcast. Starting a podcast is no easy endeavor, and it's quite harder than a lot of people actually think. You've been 
in the trenches doing podcasting for a while now. Have there been some unintended benefits to being a podcaster that either helps you as an instructor or even someone that does consulting in the sock space? Yeah, definitely. So it's not an easy thing. People just think, oh, you just kind of record yourself and that's it. And then you just <laughs> put it online, right? right. <laughs> well, you can, I guess, but usually it's a little bit more complex than that, right? For me, there's a lot of things that have come out of podcasting. One, just learning the technology and the stuff that goes behind it. I'm a huge nerd for just getting distracted into various hobbies. One of the things I learned over the pandemic was just like audio and video editing and all that stuff. And picked up on some of that just as a direct result of getting involved in the podcast, even though I don't even do that for my own podcast. I was just interested in it. Right. But there's that. There's the further extending your network of people that you just know and can talk to and content that's out there that helps people with a specific problem. I love having more of that stuff out there. And then probably one of the biggest things is just further causing you to flex that muscle of doing things that are slightly uncomfortable and scary. Mm -hmm. I find that that's one of the things that really moves the needle more than anything else is anytime you think like, oh, I don't know if I can pull this off. Should I do it? Like the answer should always be yes, because <laughs> usually it'll be no problem at all. And then you're going to be in a much better position by the end of it, even though it's going to be terrifying the entire time. Stephen Hart, you guys know, I mean, you know, came to me and was like, John, you should do a podcast. And of course, at first I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm up for that. He's like, oh, come on, you teach on stage and all sorts of other stuff. You can totally do it. I was like, all right, let's give it a shot. <laughs> and here we are, just finished season three of that. So there's nothing but upside from having a podcast in my book, for sure. It's all about that. I mean, I would imagine that someone that is doing podcasting, teaching courses, and also still being a practitioner, you have to constantly inspire yourself to keep going. I read this great book by Kendra Hall. It's called Stories That Stick. And part of the premise of it is being able to tell the same story over and over and over again. And I think to do that, you need a little inspiration. You need your own set of motivations. What inspires you and motivates you to tell the same stories? How do you reinvent the story or you reinvent yourself? So reinventing myself is an interesting question, given that being home so much in the last couple of years, I had to come up with how do I <laughs> fill my time in the extra bits where I would normally have been going out and traveling and doing whatever else. And one of the things I did throughout that time was, as I kind of mentioned, learning like video editing and some photography and some graphic design, you know, watching a bunch of movies, I actually kind of taught myself music production along the way. Oh, wow. So like I have, yeah, I've got like a copy of Ableton now and NPCs and all sorts of crazy stuff. Yes. But like, it's been super fun learning something that's completely not information security and then using the concepts that I'll see and now kind of recognize in some of these other disciplines as something that can inspire me back in information security. Anytime I can borrow a principle that works really well from another industry, whether it's engineering, I borrow from all the time because I know that really well. But from anywhere, I constantly get inspired by that. Actually, Two nights ago, I was just watching this movie. I decided it's officially fall season now, so I started watching scary movies already. My wife's nice. the week, so I can do that. <laughs> and I was flipping through movies, and I just Googled, like, oh, what's a good scary movie, like, on Reddit? And someone said, there's this movie called Leaving DC, and super low budget, but check it out. It's good. So I watch it, and it's this guy that created a movie, like, literally by himself. Like, it's a Blair Witch-style found footage whatever movie, but it was, like, really, really good, and it was entirely made by one person with a camera. And I look at that, I'm like, if you had asked me, earlier today, could one person make a movie <laughs> worthwhile? I would have said, no, I doubt it. But I finished that movie. I was like, that was a great movie considering it was one person with a camera. Like it was scary. And like, there was probably zero budget, right? So that kind of stuff, like I see it and I'm like, 
texting my friends. I'm like, should I make a movie now? Like, I didn't realize <laughs> I could do this, right? Like, I got a camera, I got a microphone. What's stopping me now? So just like being inspired by random stuff like that, just kind of looking out in, into the world and, and taking in whatever you can from anywhere you can get it and trying to reapply it to what you do. That's what I'm always looking to do. There's a double-edged sword to being interested in a bunch of different things. I tend to be a generalist. I like to do a little bit of everything. I wouldn't say I'm the master of any one particular thing, but I do find that there's like an opportunity cost when it comes to learning something new because look at cybersecurity in general. There are folks that live and breathe cybersecurity and that's it. That's all they want to do is maybe they do some content creation, but really they're focused in the realm of cybersecurity and they're just brilliant. But then you have folks that do a lot of little things like they do filmmaking or they do music or they play a sport, which is their downtime. What do you think about weighing the options of doing something new versus going deeper into the thing that either brings you money or brings you joy? How do you weigh against those different options? I kind of struggle with that myself because there were certain parts of my life where I was that person. And with every single moment of my being, I was diving into InfoSec. And that was probably when I was starting to try to get my first job and going through that and kind of earlier on. And then as I progressed, I was like, I think I need to be a little bit more well-rounded than that and kind of picked up some of these other hobbies and other stuff along the way. And I think there's merits to both of them, right? I mean, if you're head down in one topic, like nothing beats that for being an expert in that topic and knowing one thing really, really well, we're going to get absolute amazing insights and exploits and all sorts of crazy stuff from those kind of people. But I think there's other things that are also very valuable that are going to be discovered by the generalists because they're going to have all this knowledge in different domains and they're going to see patterns and be able to bring things in from other industries that a specialist might not. So I think from the whole industry perspective, we really need both. And as a person, if you're trying to decide between one and the other, I guess maybe you can ask yourself what seems better to you. That's not really a solid answer one or the other, but that's kind of how I'm starting to look at it now is kind of both are valid. The risk in being a specialist, I think, is burning yourself out, not going out and taking some other time to do relaxing things on the side. <laughs> that's kind of the, the caveat, I guess I would put on that. That definitely could burn you out. What other things are you focused on? You mentioned music creation, movie creation. I'm sure that you have a bunch of ideas, but what's at the forefront right now? So right now, I guess with my weekends and just kind of fun time at night, like playing around with music and that kind of stuff has been maybe the primary thing. But I also got a little bit into photography. You know, I was always kind of scared to learn about shutter speed and apertures and cameras and all that. But sat down one day and watched this like couple hour video on YouTube and it was like, oh, that's not that hard, right? Like right. I can kind of figure this out. October 2020, I ended up getting a nutrition coaching certificate. So I'm a certified nutrition coach on top of oh. all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you got too much time uh, on your hands. No, I'm just yeah, well, you know, that one, that one wasn't probably as time consuming. As it was It was reading three decent sized books. But I go to this gym here in Philly and I had a nutrition coach for a while because that's part of the gym. Like, hey, you want to eat well as well as work out? Like, well, yeah, of course. Right. I might as well do one if I'm going to do the other. And the guy was great. And so once the pandemic hit, I'm like, maybe I should just learn this stuff for myself so I can continue coaching myself. <laughs> so I just mm. ended up picking that up along the way. But just kind of those sorts of things. I do some coffee roasting and just try to like chase the perfect cup of coffee with my espresso machine and my home roasting kind of project and really anything. I'm constantly learning new hobbies. I picked up a Skillshare subscription because that's one of those things where I'm like, hey, I wonder if I can do that. Mm. You can just like dive in and pick up like the first 10% of any given topic in a couple hours. 
I love diving in there and being like, oh, that's how I use, you know, Adobe Illustrator. Like, <laughs> I'll go make myself a logo or at least an amateur version of one. So, yeah, I'm constantly just all over the place trying to pick up at least a little knowledge on really anything that I'm very interested in a lot of things for better, or for worse. <laughs> well, I can't wait. So when you announce that you're going to go for the world record in uh, free diving, uh, just, just let us know. I'm sure I'm sure it'll be sponsored by Red Bull and we'll be there to support you. But throughout this entire conversation, whether you're talking about doing more in the security operations space or doing more with your life and doing these additional hobbies, gaining these additional skills, there are people out there that really get caught up in their day to day. There's, oh, this is my life. I wake up, I go to work, I do the thing, I get off, I eat dinner, and then I go to bed. But there can be so much more to life. And some people just need to be told that there is more out there for them to enjoy. What is that one piece of advice or that philosophy that you adhere to that really enables you to do more and squeeze as much as you can out of life? So for me, I think it's contemplating exactly what's important to me and where I'm trying to go and not just kind of waking up aimlessly every day. I mentioned the Eisenhower matrix kind of thing earlier, the urgent and important stuff. I try to keep in my own kind of personal to-do list, like what am I really trying to accomplish and make sure every day when I wake up, I have like a moment of space. I try to get up as early as I can manage to get up every day, well before I start getting emails and meeting requests and all sorts of stuff like that. And try to plan out my day and say, like, how am I going to actually approach doing the things that matter the most to me and fit it all in on any given day and try to just map out how is today going to work so that I don't get caught up in the firefight of just doing a bunch of meaningless stuff. That's probably the main tactic that has brought me from really throughout my entire career just to the places that I've been trying to go. Valuable wisdom. And you're the scholar that's teaching other scholars. It's amazing to hear all the things that you're doing John, thank you so much for jumping on the mics with us. It was a great conversation. I feel inspired to pick up a new skill. Hopefully everyone else does. If anyone is interested in connecting with John, learning more about him, even checking out his YouTube channel, check out the show notes below. John, thank you again. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Thank you so much. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.